Welcome once again to the Altered Attitudes podcast, the podcast that delves into the realms of addiction recovery and the transformative journeys that lie within. We had the privilege of sitting down with Anne-Marie Ward, the fearless CEO of Favour UK, Faces and Voices of Recovery. With a blend of profound knowledge, academic expertise and lived experience, Anne-Marie takes us on a journey through the intricacies of addiction, recovery and the ever-evolving landscape of support that's available. In this conversation, we delve into the various topics that promise to challenge your perspectives. From the mysterious shroud of anonymity in AA, to the steps being made today to bring recovery to the forefront of Scottish policymaking. Throughout the episode, we unravel the unsettling truth about Scotland's problems with drug and alcohol abuse. Anne-Marie sheds light on the Right to Recovery Bill and emphasises the vital role of pioneers in the recovery space. We navigate the controversial topic of drug consumption rooms and the push for harm reduction. Anne-Marie's insights leave us questioning, challenging, and ultimately redefining our understanding of recovery. This episode is hosted by our very own Lester Morse with special guest Anne-Marie Ward. Let's get into it. Guys, well, thanks very much for inviting me here this morning. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk on this podcast. Um, So we were set up in 2009 with the three aims to make recovery visible and to help um, people get access and choice of services and we started doing that by organising and mobilising the recovery community across the UK through the UK Recovery Walks which I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with them. So we've been doing that, we just celebrated the 15th UK Recovery Walk um, in Hull this year and uh, we are now, you know, looking forward to receiving bids from where the walk goes next year. But the whole intention behind the charity is to try and organise and mobilise the five and a half thousand members that we currently have into advocating in a very public and visible way for those who are still suffering to get access and choice of treatment, which, as we all know, uh, is extremely limited here in the UK. Anne Marie, just a quick question Sorry. there. Is see, you actually let towns and cities and that they sort of ask, can you do the arrange the walk in in their area? Yeah, there's a bidding process. So committees, groups, individuals, services um, can put forward a bid. Uh, there's a bidding specification document, and they can just put it forward for a bid. Usually there's two or three bids come in every year so therefore it goes out to a public vote. That vote usually happens on social media. Sometimes there's there can be as many as ten thousand people taking part in the vote. Oh. Um so yeah, um the closing date for the bids this year is December the twentieth. So I don't know if this podcast will go out before then. But if Should it does they... get your bids in. Yeah. What what would a march consist of just so people would know? Um so say you 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 would like that in your town or city, what would actually happen then? Well, it's it's a bit the easiest way to describe it is it's a wee bit like gay pride without the fabulousness and the booze. So it's a real celebration of recovery. You know, it's a celebration of people's journeys and their determination, their tenacity. It's also a, a celebratory event for family, friends and allies of recovery. So, you know, the treatment services and the the organisations that support us and help us sustain our recovery come along as well to uh, support 
and celebrate the day basically it's just it's a great day out it's there's usually you know a march a procession through the town there's usually a stage set up with entertainment there's stuff for the kids you know the usual sort of festival shenanigans like yeah. bouncy castles and ice cream and food and you know, just generally a, a really good old party yeah. and and people can then come along and sort of meet people that are in um, all sort of forms of recovery, abstinence-based recovery. Yeah. So on the day, we normally have you know people there from all the different pathways to recovery, and we also put on um, you know like a variety of different recovery meetings. So there's usually an E, N, A, C, A, Al-Anon, Smart Recovery meeting. You know, we we make sure that there's a wee taster session for anybody who's curious. Uh, to come along and listen in. So, yeah, we try and represent all the different pathways to recovery, yep. How have you found the anonymous bit? Because I think um, people in recovery, they like to be anonymous, I think, but I think that can go a little bit far. I think even Bill Wilson, when he came to England, said it was like trying to find the Secret Service. Uh, how do you, uh, for the people that are in recovery, that, that sort of have think that's not being anonymous what would you say about that well unfortunately it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the tradition of anonymity so we've produced a booklet on this called um, advocacy with anonymity and how not to break the traditions but still make recovery visible mm. so there's a long tradition within Alcoholics Anonymous of um visibility anonymity was never meant to mean invisibility and you know i think i think the criticism is that um you know if, if you're sort of putting yourself out there as a beacon of recovery you know that you're at risk of you know a lack of humility first and foremost but you're also at risk of bringing the fellowship and a disrepute well one of the ways that we advise people to navigate that is to when they talk about their recovery, not to mention, you know, they can talk about the mutual aid fellowship, um, they can use that phrase, but they don't necessarily have to declare their membership of Alcoholics Anonymous, and of course, or Narcotics Anonymous as the case might be, um, or any of the other anonymous fellowships, you know, in that way they won't be breaking the tradition. Um, but for, for from my own personal point of view, I think, you know, having a visible representation of recovery to the general public really challenges stigma. I don't know how many times, you know, people have said to me over the years, oh, you don't look like an addict. And I'm like, well, what does an addict look like? You know, so I think the very nature of offering that visibility just challenges stigma and stereotypes. You know, we've still got a very long way to go with that. Um, and I think that's Marie, one of the think, main reasons why people should consider it. I think, because um, again, we people watching the podcast have had a bit of trouble starting it this morning. But again, I think it really would be nice to sort of go back on your story and a bit on your journey, because I guess you've sort of gone on a journey of your own um, and, and you've come to these conclusions because of your experience and, and decided to create these marches and the build to recovery. But I think it really would be nice to get a bit of context to the background of of, of where you're coming from and, and what led you to realising there is a need because it is quite radical uh, and, and again I'm completely in agreement with you that, that people do need to see recovery and this misconception of anonymity has been a bit of a barrier that 
that does need to be sort of removed because I think there's a lot of real miracles out there that are not really getting seen. So it'd be great if you could uh, sort of tell us a bit about sort of your path and and what led you to, to the realisation that this needs to, to kind of happen in our country. Well, yeah, I think, I, mean, I think it's important to, you know, say first and foremost that there's a false humility in keeping your light under a bushel, you know. Um, um, I was brought up with this sort of adage of uh, sort of self-praise is no honour, which, you know, I, I very much believe in. Um, but I think there's something about being visible and speaking about our recovery publicly when we when we assert the mirac the miraculous nature of some of our stories and for me um and the longer I stay in recovery the more miracles I see on a daily basis, you know, and the more I reflect obviously on my own journey and that is just filled with um you know, statistically I should be dead. My background is that I grew up in an alcoholic home, you know, both parents were alcoholic. My mother's alcoholism really progressed later in life but we you know we suffered um badly i've got two siblings uh, sorry three siblings two brothers and a sister and um, we all suffered in various ways there was um a lot of domestic violence physical abuse there was also sexual abuse um so when i found alcohol at aged 11 it was exactly the medicine i was looking for you know and I continued to use alcohol and other drugs. I was using Class A drugs by the time I was 15, 16. Um, but having always been brought up with a very, you know, working class ethic, like you're fine as long as you go to your work. I was never, there was a real shame around, you know, being on benefits or, uh, you know, receiving any sort of charity as well so very proud working class background so right up until the age of 25 which was when I got uh, clean and sober I'd, I functioned to all extensive purposes you know by the time I got clean I had three jobs um, and but all of that was you know ways and means to get more that was the way the, the my whole reason for working right from the age of 11 when I first found alcohol I got my first job at 12 in a wee cafe and it was for that purpose it was so as I could get money for at that time alcohol and nicotine and that that just uh, you know progressed until I was 25 and uh, as I said you know completely self-sufficient um, and uh, uh uh, eventually, you know, be, I was using substances on a daily basis at that point while still functioning, still showing up for work, you know, but people had became like pop-up characters in my life, you know, who I had to have the bare minimum of interaction with in order to get away from them. Like there was no connection, there was no real connection in my life, although there was relationships that had been there my whole life, there were there was a barrier to connection in all those relationships, which of course that barrier was my my addiction, but I couldn't couldn't identify that. Um, and it got to the point where my spirit was at such a peep, I was in despair, you know, and I cried it to a god that I didn't understand. I had no faith in, or I was very very angry with. And I said, "If you're there, help me." And I found myself within. I think it was within a few days, I'm not quite sure the time span, 
in my first meeting, um, my first mutual aid meeting, and I haven't used alcohol or other drugs since then. And I use that phrase very deliberately, alcohol and other drugs, because we, we seem to fall into this societal uh, denial that alcohol isn't a drug, you know. So, you know, and since that day, since I went to that first meeting, um, the, the main thing that I was given was hope. Um, and, and I also was given a programme for living, you know, um, because life with it, alcohol and other drugs had was completely alien to me. I felt like a fish out of water and, you know, alcohol and other drugs had been such a, you know, a... a a help to, you know, I, I firmly believe had I not found alcohol and other drugs, I may well be dead because they were my first coping mechanism. Um, you know, I was very, as I said, I was suffering a lot of trauma and, and to a certain extent the alcohol and other drugs medicated that. And it wasn't until I found the Anonymous Fellowship that I'm still a member of today um, and the people within that who had recovered from the trauma that I needed to recover from, that I felt able to step into that uh, hope and attempt the journey of recovery. And Marie, um, what what was the? Uh, how long ago was that that moment in your life? Twenty over twenty six years ago now. What what did the um, the anonymous fellowships look like uh, at that time for you? Well, I was living in London, so my very first meeting was in St Luke's Church in Chelsea. I, I lived in Wandsworth at the time, so I was really shocked at the, you know, the the members um, and who they were. You know, it was a really it was Chelsea, and there was loads of young people. I was like, you know, it was I was ve- it was very attractive, and um, you know, there was no, I wasn't giving anything up because, you know, there was a whole new set of friends who were living clean and sober, who were still going dancing, who were still going clubbing, you know, everything that a 25-year-old wants to do. Um, so I had real access to that, but also had access to, you know, my sponsor at the time was a cognitive behavioural and psychodynamic therapist. So I had, she was also a, a sexual abuse survivor, so I had access to not just lived experience care, but professional care and professional guidance. Um, so I was very, very lucky. You know, I describe it as having the access to the creme de la creme of, you know, help that was available. And I, I couldn't have accessed that help in the community. You know, I, there was at no point had I ever thought alcohol and drugs was the problem until I went to my first meeting. You know, it was, and it was through the course of going to meetings that I was able to identify. Even though I'd been using on a daily basis, my denial was such that I genuinely thought alcohol and other drugs were the solution. So it wasn't until I started going to meetings regularly and attending meetings regularly that, that denial started to break down, and I could see how how dependent I had been for so you know for from such a young age how obsessed I had been as well with finding ways and means to get more and, and how that had totally dominated my life so I was I was very lucky that fellowship was massively influenced as well in southwest London by various treatment centres so there was a lot of real therapeutic talk in the meetings as well as you know my home group was tooting Monday night um and it was a real bread and butter big book meeting. So I, I got really um, a big book study group. I just, and, and one of my other home groups at the time was a 12 by 12 study group. So I got the, 
you know, looking back, I got the absolute best of what was available, and uh, I, and for me, I, I think that was obs very obviously God given and divinely gifted to me. But I guess, but I guess you get that as well. Where it's like you obviously were uh, very interested in it, and and uh, it was showing you plenty about yourself and life. Because I don't think people sort of understand that that when you come into recovery. You just think, oh, I just want to stop getting into trouble. I just want all the problems to go away. And and then as you start learning about all this spirituality and psychology and therapy and dysfunction, it's like this whole other world that you've been living in all your life starts emerging. And I, I found that could be a bit disturbing at the beginning because you think, oh, when I sort myself out, the world's going to be all right. But then you start seeing there's actually quite a lot of problems uh, in yeah. the world and well, in the people for, around you. Yeah, well, for me, it was really a process. You know, I, I had been... My, I remember my sponsor saying to me, see that fake it till you make it? That doesn't apply to you. You've been faking it your whole <laughs> life. You need to show up and get real. So, you know, I had been I had been functioning to all extensive purposes. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know that there was anything wrong because I was paying my taxes. I'm the only addict I know that paid her tele licence. Um, but I was I was so focused on making everything look as if it was okay. Um, so I I wasn't getting into you know a lot of the trouble. So when I when I first came, like I was like I've never been to jail, I've never been to you know hospital, you know like. So there was, it was for me it was the real disconnection of you know I felt like an alien on the wrong planet. You know it was that, and and it wasn't until I landed in the rooms that um that I found that connection, that I found people speaking a language that I had no way, way to articulate, but it spoke the same language as my heart, you know, and, and, and you guys helped me articulate it. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a lot there that was, that could, you know, my life, to, from looking out from the inside, from the outside, rather, I had everything a 25-year-old girl should have, you know, um I had a nice house, I had money in the bank, I had clothes in the wardrobe, but it was the meaninglessness of it, it was the despair, it was the lack of point or lack of purpose that brought me to Minnie's um, lack of connection. Um, and, and, and the fellowship gave me that connection, you know, it, it plugged me in to the, to the, to the, in fact, my step four and five was really the, the like the Wi-Fi hotspot for plugging me in because until I did my step four and five, I, I, had, I had very little connection with the world in general. Although I was functioning in it and going through the motions of it, it was step four and five that brought me into my own humanity and helped me to see uh, the healing that needed to take place in order for me to recover. And, and I guess you um, also realised the benefit that you, you could have in like helping other people and and sharing some of that good quality information that you were getting with, because I know not everybody gets that. I, I was the same as you. I started my journey in Canada, and I was in such a good group of people, and I was there for three years. It gave me such a strong foundation. But when I come back to to Watford, this was thirty years ago. That the difference in the quality of recovery and the quality of understanding dropped quite quite a lot. I felt a bit of an alien again, and and. Uh, found it difficult to understand how little they seem to understand about the program and the processes and just discovered it became a bit really difficult funny. for me then 
That's really funny. I had a similar experience at almost three years clean. I, I left London and came back to Glasgow and had an almost identical experience. There was very few women in the fellowship doing the steps. In fact, you know, I think at one point I was like banging the table saying, you guys have got to do the steps, otherwise I'm going to yeah. die, which is technically yeah. true, you know. Yeah. And, um, so... Yeah, I had a very similar experience and it took me a wee while to get a sure footing again um, and to pass on. In fact, my sponsor now was a woman who came over from Canada. Uh, she's still my sponsor today. So when I, she arrived in Glasgow about, I think about nine months after I arrived and I was like, thank you God, you know, because yeah. she was coming from a... She she had that experience and she, she because was just you, on you a mission to take as many women not, through the steps. It, I found that people, when I come no, back from Canada, is that they actually believed that doing the steps was going to this group on a Friday night where they read from the 12 and 12 and then they criticised it yeah. and they believed that was doing the steps. So when they actually started talking about the big book and actually following the processes written in the big book, then the attacks begin that you're a fanatic, you're a this, that and the other and I found it quite shocking and if it wasn't for them, same for you, for you, if it wasn't for them guys in Canada and America encouraging you, it would have been difficult to, yeah. uh, to just, because again, it's, it's a fellowship I was craving as well, it didn't really, uh, struggled in them yeah, other groups. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there, I mean, this, there's still this, you know, this adage in the Glasgow Fellowship, um, in particular, I don't hear it really anywhere else in the world unless there's someone from Glasgow or from the west coast of Scotland in the meeting where they say, if you can't, if you don't pick up the first drink, you can't get drunk, and you know, which is a complete, um, the complete antithesis of the whole program. Because if I had the power not to pick up the first drink, of course I wouldn't get drunk, I wouldn't need to come to A, you know. Yeah. So there's there is still quite a lot of that old school, um unwellness um you know the the remnants or the residue of that kind of thinking is still kicking around i remember reading somewhere and it was a long time ago i read this and i, and I don't know where i read it but bill wilson came to glasgow in the 50s and he said i don't know what it is but it's no a <laughs> you know so that was like there was there was um you know there was an acknowledgement that we had sort of bastardized it and not for the better it. Um, but, it, you know, it's been really interesting. I've saw AA in Scotland get a much-needed revival through the Cocaine Anonymous Fellowship. So there's, you Nikki, know, there's been Nikki, Cocaine Anonymous. Nikki, Nikki, a young guy, Nicky, I forget his last name. I think he started the CA in Glasgow with his wife. Uh, I remember coming up there years and years uh, ago. Well, you know... Well, yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not say who started it, because my sponsor and another woman that I know, Remy, and various other people would claim that they started it. Let's not get into that. Remy, that's but, that, that's the but, girl. That's the, the yeah. So I yeah. met them years ago in in uh, Glasgow in CA. Yeah. So I think I think that's really gave a real boost to you know the the program, because mm. um, there is although CA is still a very young fellowship and immature in many ways, particularly around the service structure and um, you know, just the, the the ways that it functions. It has gave it a much needed boost to Alcoholics Anonymous as well. It's funny how it works yeah. isn't it? That we, yeah. all the different fellowships serve each other if you if you can keep an open mind and see the the links, you know. Um, 
So yeah, I see cocaine anonymous, and of course Scotland has is the biggest users of cocaine in the world. Um, cocaine anonymous has grown tremendously uh, in Scotland, as it has in other parts of the UK as well. We've got a massive cocaine problem here, so I see a real benefit, you know. And and probably had I got had cocaine anonymous been around when, you know, when I first got clean, that would have naturally been the fellowship that I would have been most aligned with. But for me, um. I went to both Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and still do and occasionally pop into CA when when I'm asked or a sponsee invites me along. Yeah, so 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 you were down in London three years and you got back to Scotland and and started to see that there was obviously some areas in in the fellowship because I think once you sort of get to sort of be you know, go along in the fellowship a bit, then you sort of realise again, as I did in Watford, that, um, that there was a lot that that could be improved. They weren't very happy with that, but but it was the same thing. Is is, is what I did was um, I got ten guys and said, look, do you fancy just doing the steps as it's written in the big book? We do all the things that you're meant to do, just as like an experiment. We go to meet ninety meetings in ninety days. We get sponsors. We do voluntary. We we just try and do everything that we believe that you're supposed to do and just see what happens. And I've got 10 of them to agree. And, uh, and so they come around me out on a Wednesday and Sunday night and we did our morning meditations and nighttime infantries and everything that we knew that you meant to do. And, and it was amazing. It was amazing how many people noticed the difference in us yeah. uh, in, in actually um, working this program. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, that wasn't how I tackled it. I just sort of got my head down. I had one sponsee, and uh, I got my head down in trying to build my own life. Um, I was available for service, so I worked my way, uh, or the fellowship worked its way through me, through the service structure. So I, I did like group rep, regional rep, um, area rep. UK rep, you know, and served on the the committee service structure. So I think that really schooled me for, you know, the work that I do now, the charity work that I do now, and setting up the charity. I learned a lot through, you know, working in our being of service uh, in the service structure. I learned how to do business, you know, and I don't mean that in a money making sense. I mean it yeah. in a sort of structural and communication sense. So. um so yeah, I I didn't. I, I sort of, my sponsor was focused on doing that. She was taking quite a lot of women through the the um, the program at that time. But I I probably spent the next ten years of my life uh, trying to build a life for myself um, that was um, that was that I didn't you know that I didn't want to let go of. So I went to university. I fell pregnant unexpectedly in my first year at university. So it took me until I was about five years clean. That's when I went to university. It took me that long to feel assured that I was on solid ground. Up until that point, I was always like, you know, this could go tits up any moment. Um, and that was probably because I had a lot of trauma to recover from. And at five years clean, I went to uni and, as I said, fell pregnant with my son. He's 20 one now um so I really in the early years I was focused on him and trying to build a life for me and him I was a single mum most of that time so 
Uh, it wasn't until he was about nine or ten that I set up the charity. Um, I started doing the walks in 2009, so he would have been eight then, uh, eight or nine. Um, and and the just decision what, to come what, what... to that was... Sorry, no, sorry, you were just going to answer it yourself then. I was just going to say, what sort of led you to that decision? And what was you trying to uh, address by doing that? What had you discovered? Well, there was a couple of things. I mean, there was um, there was a forum at the time called Wired In, and there was a lot of people who were interested in the the lack of access and choice of services in the UK who came together on that platform. And I called a meeting, basically... Uh, in Glasgow and people came from all over the UK to see if we could emulate what was being done in the States because there was already a, an organisation called Faces and Voices of Recovery in the States and I wanted to set up something similar. And our first few attempts um, we set up as a charity, eh, sorry a, com a community interest group then we became a community interest company. Um, and that, you know, it was a few years later before we became a charity. I had always wanted us to be a charity from the beginning, but it was the real reason was because there was so little access and choice of services. You know, like I, I realised how lucky I had been to stumble into the fellowships and to avoid the treatment system. Um, personally, you know, I had felt like the treat if I had been if I had went into the treatment system, I might not have got out of it. So could, I could you, see could the you expand on that, that a little bit more, Emery, for people that might not know, especially, I guess, in, in Scotland, that um, there was treatment being provided. Um, could you like expand on, on the difference or, or, or what your what, what your reasons for that, could, yeah. you know, when you come to them conclusions? Well, you know, there's this... Uh, understanding that when the general public thinks about treatment and up until that point when I thought about treatment I thought about rehab I thought that's what treatment was but actually you know the longer I stayed in recovery and the more people I meet who were you know coming out of treatment and coming into the rooms uh, I quickly realized that for the most part what treatment actually meant was a substitute prescription and of course that has some value initially um, but it fundamentally misunderstands our condition, you know, like if you're substituting one drug for another, there's a there's a a lack of um, understanding that my condition will will get used to whatever that substitution is and it will still want more. I, essentially I, I suffer from a disease of more. <laughs> Uh, regardless of what it is I'm trying to fix myself with, whether that be, you know, a sedative or a barbiturate or a narcotic, you know, whatever it is, it's it's something that I'm trying to fix something inside with. It might be gambling, shopping. You know, my understanding, especially being a, a member of Narcotics Anonymous, was that I was powerless over addiction. It wasn't a particular substance or a particular behaviour that I was powerless over. It was addiction overall. Um, and that made perfect sense to me because in the, certainly in those early years of recovery, I found myself being obsessive and compulsive about other things. You know, so I quickly learned that it wasn't actually about the substance. So our treatment system treats the symptom rather than the condition. And, this, and it treats the symptom with another symptom 
which is fundamentally, you know, it can initially be, there can be some relief from that. And there is obviously a crime reduction dividend to the public purse around that, which is the main reason why uh, we, we, we still insist um, on, on that mode of treatment. Although I would argue, if any, any researchers were to look at that now, that, you know, that drug uh, crime reduction dividend is certainly uh, highly questionable now that we've kept people on the methadone programme for over 30 years. Um, like the public purse, what that has cost the public purse, you know, when, it, when I talk about this, I'm accused of stigmatising methadone users and it's not a criticism of people who are still using methadone after 30 years, it's a criticism of the unethical nature of the system that has allowed that. Um, the research tells us that there are a tiny minority of people who will who will need, you know, who have a sort of uh, opiate impairment, like their their uh, their brain will no longer recognise um, natural feelings of elation because of opiate addiction. But that represents like a tiny minority of people who are addicted to opiates. So mm. I think there's real ethical questions around, you know, the nature of, you know, that initial totalitarian public policy, which was about, you know, like, you think about drug addiction in the 80s, high unemployment, all our poorest communities, Glasgow, Liverpool, Manchester, you know, the schemes, basically, the housing estates, where loads of young men were unemployed. Heroin was a full-time job. You know, like, you're trying to get yeah. a bag of heroin every day. You're busy. You know what I mean? You're really busy. So the crime reduction dividend that was initially put forth as the argument for the methadone programme by Thatcher's government... Um, Which I guess would know, sell, was, sell was a, be able to, to sell that to the general population because I guess when you well, think of was, drug addiction and crime yeah, was, that they're going to want to bring the crime down so everybody's going to yeah. agree that's a good policy. Yeah, of course, but it was a short-term policy, you know, because as as any addict knows, you know that that became methadone was breakfast, you know, it's that it, it cut crime in the morning or like they need to score in the morning, but still because we, this is a progressive this condition where we need more, um, you know, there was still the crime was still happening, you know, like, it's, it, people, and this again isn't stigmatising people who use methadone or stigmatising people who are addicts, this is, you know, this is the nature of the beast that we suffer from, like, it will drive us to crime, and and anybody who's, you know, sort of claiming that we are being stigmatising by talking about that honestly has been uh, deliberately uh disingenuous and that's me being polite because yeah well i think the statistics you know, every in, addict on the planet will talk about this yeah i think still the statistics in england that are recently got is 50 percent of robberies addiction based 50 percent of burglaries 50 percent of homicides 80 yeah. percent of people so in jail a, so it's not a it makes you wonder why they they don't stigmatize it more and they don't realize actually the massive cost that addiction does actually cause to a society. Yeah, well, there's a, there's an element. Uh, I was recently criticised for this as well. There was a and there's an element of sort of positive shame that comes with stigmatisation. You know, like there was parts of my behaviour when I was using that I was ashamed of, 
And when I stopped choosing, I stopped behaving like that. And, you know, I, I, I then had to heal from that shame. And, and I, you know, that's why, uh, you know, the, the fact that I sort of knew that I was, you know, that when I was no longer addicted, I was no longer powerless. But if I'm still addicted, whether that drug's legal or illegal comes from a chemist or, a, you know, a pharmacy, yeah. whatever. My addiction doesn't know the difference. Yeah, absolutely. So there was elements of my behavior that were shameful when I was using that, mm. you know, but I can see that I have, um, there was a powerlessness to what drove those behaviors. And the minute I was free from the dependency and the need to use, those behaviors stopped. Mm. You know, and I think that's the case for most you know, people once they get into recovery, you know, obviously I'm generalizing here, but I think after 26 years of going to meetings, like, I'm, you know, I could, I've got a good grasp of what's going on with people in recovery. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, most of us don't indulge in behavior that uh, brings shame. Yeah, I mean, even I think, the stigma I think there's, thing, there's the a positive thing. case. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I think even the stigma no, thing, ahead, like, I, I like to think that, you know, because again, sort of coming, and again, I've been on the front line of addiction again myself for 33 years. I've been spending my whole life and in a mass experience with quite a few thousand people and seen quite a lot of variations of what can go on for people. But even sort of trying to destigmatize is it's like when they stigmatise drink driving for example it really brought the the figures down to, to try and take all of the you know again I see the harm minimalization and it's it's good that you know there's it brings down HIV and hepatitis and it, again like you say it's questionable whether it brought crime down I mean Change Grow Live used to be called Crime Reduction Initiative which I thought was a terrible name to call something for people to go to but it and again it it may bring that down questionable about the crime but it doesn't treat the addiction yeah. and I think that's kind yeah. of what I was hearing you saying it's like to call it treatment it's not really treatment it's improvement in some areas yeah. but it's not it's not treatment yeah, I don't know if it's improvement to the individual. It might be improvement to the public purse, but I don't think yeah. it's improvement to the individual. And no. I think it's important that we, we recognise that, you know, our policies are about blanket, you know, they're about blanket policies for the general public. Mm. They're not about the individual. And that individual's recovery and the healing that people, you know, nobody chooses to become an addict or an alcoholic, you know. The... the the level of work that is required to enter into the process of recovery and to stay into the process of recovery, you know, many people balk at that and, and a lot of people don't, you know, sustain that journey because it's so hard. So I think there's a, a recognition that hasn't fully sunk in yet, you know, like there's a lack of ambition within our so-called treatment services that we can actually get well, but I think there's a lack of recognition about what that entails, you know, the tenacity, perseverance, and, you know, the principles that 
of personal growth that are required in order to sustain that. We don't recognise that in our treatment system and I don't think we can. It's too big, I think. Um, yeah, but if we did, if we, if we had a very recovery-orientated treatment system rather than a treatment system that is trying to focus on, like, you know, crime reduction dividends, I think we would, you well, know, I've if seen, we recognise uh, uh... the whole person. Like yourself, I've kind of been up the mountain and I've seen the, the promised land running a rehab and um, being right sort of at the centre of quite large recovering communities where there's a hell of a lot more support focused on and everyone around could see it as well, just like the example I had in Watford that, that all of the authorities and everybody around could see, in their words, that we were head and shoulders above everything else that they were seeing, the quality of the people emerging because they were being empowered. They were getting their own jobs, getting their own education, getting their own housing, supporting each other. So I've, I've seen that, that, that actually in reality, but at the same time, yeah. I could also see how li little support or acknowledgement of how important that core that we put together was and it's really not at yeah. the top in actual fact the authorities attacked that and made it impossible for some yeah. strange reason and it, and it, yeah and then you'll be accused of being paranoid or you know um, mm. prejudiced which or I am you know, some <laughs> other, yeah but, but I think um, I think you know like I think this is another thing like when we talk about being powerless they're, you know, over our, our addiction, like the sort of people outside the recovery community would see that as being a disempowering statement when actually it's the complete opposite. You know, it's one of those paradoxes. The many paradoxes that we experience in recovery is the minute we can see that powerlessness, we become powerful and we become mm -hmm. empowered. Um, to to build, you know, to take responsibility for our lives. I remember my sponsor, I mean, my, my story is pretty horrific, you know, my childhood story in particular. Um, and I remember saying, I mean, you know, that's a really good victim story. You could die in it and that. No one would blame you if you used again. No one would, you know, you, you'd totally get a pass if you burnt your life to ground here um, because what you've experienced is horrendous. But what are you going to be? You're going to be a victim. You're going to be a survivor. And it was like a punch in the gut because I didn't, I didn't want that responsibility for my life. You know, I really didn't at that point. I was like, you know, I was so used to, you know, blaming other people for, you know, for me. Um, that that being handed that responsibility was initially terrifying. And, it, and it's something that obviously I cherish now and I take, you know, I've got an over, an over uh, sensitive, I suppose, sense of responsibility now. I feel very duty Sorry, just I just having... wanted to say as well, because again, I totally identify with that. Because again, I think having addiction is one thing, but then having like a difficult sort of very um, dysfunctional childhood is, is almost a compounding problem but I think like listening to your story is that that would be very difficult to, 
to try and hand that level of responsibility to an individual that obviously because again you get it says we were powerless not we are but the evidence is the unmanageability of the life uh, I never really felt powerless once I understood what it was actually saying to me but I also realized I wasn't alone from that point with the responsibility because I didn't know how to um, interact with the world and I didn't know how to cope with a lot of the issues that life was throwing at me but but from that this is why I love the fellowship so much because there's a lot of people there that could support me and help me to take on that responsibility if I was willing which allowed me to then start developing the, the capacity to be able to to live a life free from substance yeah and I, and I know for me as well, it was having that safety net, like, and I, and I never really believed it. And there's been times where, you know, where I've attended meetings and especially in recent years, I've had quite a bit of trauma um, from relationships. Uh, so there have been times where, you know, initially the, the attitude that I had when I was first coming to meetings which was well you guys are sages are going to help me so let's see if you're actually going to help me you know so I sort of had that kind of belligerent well you sages are going to show up are you going to show up you know and there's there's been a few times where that's happened uh, and certainly in recent years um, and you know it, ne it never fails to let me down you know and sometimes it might be something as simple as a newcomer you know like a newcomer sharing something about their experience that reminds me not only how far I've came but what I need to practice you know like it's always there like you know in, in early recovery you, you see coincidences everywhere and um, everything's like you know bright, brighter the grass is greener the sky is bluer yeah. and, and that I've found a sort of channel within you know, being part of the anonymous fellowships that I can tap into that sky is bluer, the grass is greener. You know, there's a there's a I don't know, a sort of golden thread that runs through our fellowship that helps us realign always with um not just uh, a sort of positive mental attitude but a real deeper um purpose and meaning. And I don't think that constant reminder of purpose and meaning to our lives it, it probably happens in faith-based communities you know people who are very active in the church or active in maybe even people that are very active in political movements have the same meaning purpose um or, or, or a similar you know sense of meaning and purpose but i think there's something very special about what we have that isn't aligned or it's not part of a doctor a dogma or a ideology you know um I think there's 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 a power that we can access that is very unique and if people are really interested in it and exploring it you know from a sort of intellectual point of view it's quite anarchistic what we do you know in the true sense of the word there is there is divine order in it but there's no bosses there's no hierarchy so it's it's always been attractive to me as an organization as well um you know just how how it functions it functions like an inverted triangle it functions the opposite way you know like every the, you know everything that we hold high in a hierarchical society it functions in the opposite way and it and it continues to grow 
Yeah, yeah, it amazes me when you actually, well, when I think I understand it a bit better after 33 years, but it's a miracle, I think it's a miracle that anyone recovers, really. Because <laughs> yeah. it's so complex, because it is, it is like the human brain. And I think one of the wishes that I really wish for society, and again, part of the reason why we sort of do podcasts and everything else that we try and do is that I just wish that people would understand the damage that's done to the brain of somebody taking mind or a substance over a long period when they are attempting to stop, even though I guess it seems to be an impossible task. Um, but that I love that bridge. It says the bridge to normal living. And, 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 and so I think that to understand what that bridge is and how difficult it is for a brain to recover, but it will recover, and, and the stronger the environment we can put it in, the recovery environment, then the more chance that that person's got of spending the years that it takes. And I think initially it's you've got to be looking at a good four years uh, to get over to that bridge to ever, you know, to, to the to the peaks and troughs start slowing down a little bit. Um, and and you because there's a very real practical. Um, physical thing going on in that brain that the neural pathways are literally needing to re rewire, but they can and they do, given the right environment. I think, like you quite rightly said, that there's certain drugs that people are being given as a treatment that are they're just never that's never going to happen. There's never going to be yeah. a opportunity for their brain to redevelop the ability to uh, to. Because nature's just waiting to kick back in again, to to yeah. say let. I heard it. I heard it described, and it was a it was in a YouTube video years ago. Again, I can't remember who it was, but um, it was they they took brain slides of people in abstinent recovery. You know, the neuro the mm. neurologists like sliced the brains of people in long term abstinent twelfth step recovery, and um. They compared that with the brains of people who had recovered, uh, who had abstained, um, but who had me attended 12 state fellowships. And what they described was, when you're in addiction, the neurological pathways get caught in a loop and the loop, the pathway gets, the groove within the pathway gets deeper and deeper and you just get stuck on the same loop over and over again. And what they found in the difference with these brain slides was the people who had attended 12-step meetings, they had developed new neural pathways and the mm. groove, the depth of the groove had had got filled in essentially yeah. and they had Sockeye, created all these I new synapses that. and new... But people who had just abstained had, had, hadn't created those new paths and the, the, no. the grooves had stayed as deep within the yeah, neural that's what, paths. That's, that's what recovery is it's the, that, that essential ingredient which again we don't see in a lot of them other services that allows that redevelopment to take place because it creates yeah. a very strong environment there's a great video uh if anyone's interested it's called pleasure unwoven and i think you alluded to it that there's a, a a pleasure deafness that occurs in the brain with a hedonic set point changes but it actually talks through I bet it's about the choice argument it's by Dr Kevin McCauley it's called Pleasure Unwoven it really is a, a good video to watch because it does explain the process of what actually yeah. goes on 
in the brain, get it from America, from an alcohol institute. Yeah, and that also gives weight to the powerless argument. Once you're, you know, mm. when you're in, when that groove, when that, that groove is so deep, it gets stuck in that loop, and it takes, yeah. you know, it takes a whole new way of life. And I think even, my, I remember my early days, you know, living in London. I'd been living in London for nine years, and I knew London by the pubs. So I could tell you which, you know, what, you know, like Kilburn, this pub, that pub, that pub. So when I when I started going to meetings across London, you know, I got to know the city. I got to know, you know, the different ways to travel, the different, you know, my life had, my life really opened up, even just from a, a really basic um, geographical point of view, it really opened up, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't stuck going to the same places all the time. So that in itself, you know, built neuro, neurologic, new, you know, by the time I was five years clean, I was ready to go to uni, you know. Um, and also, I think for me, having had a traumatic background as well, um, I was never, you know, I was always on a state of high alert at school. So I was never, you know, regulated enough um, to study or to concentrate in any real way. And recovery gave me that. It regulated my my whole system, you know, like, it took, like I said, it took five years, four or five well, years to get That's one of the professional definitions thought... that we use of uh, somebody with addiction, that they're an adult who's um, either never had or lost the ability to adjust and control their emotional states because of that, that's yeah. being created by their thought processes being out of control. So... Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, cr critics of recovery, particularly critics of 12-step recovery, really have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and, no, and I don't and, know why, because there's so much evidence. Really... There's so much evidence yeah. now. And again, it's like, even in my own experience, is actually building quite a miniature little city within a city that that was thriving and showing and doing talks on brain at the same time of showing people that this is why it's working. And but if you don't understand our version of recovery, that is, um, I think, I mean, I think you said it's simply, which was, uh, I never quite heard it like that, that the people that, that may become abstinent but don't do any development, their brains really obviously are going to stay as they were. You pretty much got an addict that doesn't take drugs anymore. But when yeah. the people engage in recovery, which again is the program, that's why it says we were, not we are powerless, that the brain starts to redevelop, which, you know, and again, under brain scan, like you say, you can see the more light developing in the frontal lobes of the people. The more light you've got, the more life you've got in your body, then, of course, the more happy you're going to be because the trouble with addiction is whether you actually are dead or not, it takes you very close to it on a daily, momentary basis. <laughs> Why would you be happy when you're that close to death all the time? Yeah. And, you know, for me, like, of course, there are other paths that other people get well on, do you know what mm. I mean? But for me, you know, I'm so glad that I've, that my journey took me on this path. And I've had, you know, I've obviously, you know, my first sponsor being a CBT therapist and I've tapped into therapy over the years as well for various things. Um, I'm just so glad that the what I tapped into that program that we we are offered, we're invited to partake in. It's not like a requirement, you know. There's no requirement. The only requirement is a desire to not use. We don't even, you know, demand abstinence from people, you know. 
but the the invite to take part in that program which is completely limitless you know as far as growth is concerned has been the gift of my life there's no doubt about it it's, it's deeply influenced my son and how I brought him up um, the open-mindedness the willingness to continue to grow that is you know uh, you know as that we practice is something that again you know even if you're part of a political movement or a religious movement I don't think that open-mindedness and that willingness to grow along spiritual lines is available in the way the simplicity of how it's delivered as well um, is something that I just I don't see access and I've explored lots of those areas you know I've looked into the doctrine of various religious faiths and the ideology of different political movements and I just don't see the freedom and liberation and the development opportunities that we are given in those other um, movements so I, I'm so grateful that I've that I'm personally allowed you know graced to still explore that I mean it's, it's incredible the journey that I've been on and I'm sure you have been too and I, intellectually emotionally spiritually you know we get to hit all the good points in life and and really mark them way you know have yeah. discernment around what's happening you know and not take any of it for granted yeah well i think i'm quite clear at the age of 57 and 33 years that i couldn't do this on my own and this having the uh, the foundation of my life as my program I think that's made it possible and still is today because again uh, you know when the drinking and drugs went down the problems didn't go away the emotional and mental torture yeah. um, trauma carried on yeah. and, and still is in some areas of my life but you know um, I can yeah. still be overcome it and be successful but I still use you know my program development and you know, like I say, I think AA or the, the the 12-step fellowship is sort of a dispenser of universal principles. But, you know, I've worked with yeah. a lot of professionals over the years and different um, beliefs and therapies, but I still haven't come across anything that's simpler. But I can understand a lot of people may have prejudices and be offended by it because what it's dispensed by and what is packaged in, if they can just get past that bit... I think they'd find a wonderful program that you need really yeah. not and I suppose, have any issue with. Yeah, and I suppose... Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. That's how I'm finished, thank you. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, yeah. And I think that that's... I mean, the discussion that we've just had about, you know, the, the nature of 12-step recovery sort of brings me to why we you know brought the bill the right to recovery bill to the parliament and it was primarily because of what we spoke about there regards to treatment that we could see people were coming forward and asking we were hearing from them all the time people were asking for treatment to help them get free from their dependency on the substance and we people couldn't access that we couldn't help them access it either um, they were coming to us saying that they didn't want to engage in the traditional treatment structures because there was nothing there for them. 
um, they were coming to us and saying, like, I really want to go to rehab, but my drug worker or my doctor is saying that I'm not ready. I've been on a methadone script for 20 years or or other people come to us and say, I want to come off my methadone and I want to go into Bouvidal, but they'll not let me. You know, so we, we, so we were saying people being, uh, you know, they, they just never had choice and access. And we, we had tried via the, the charity for many years to highlight that, you know, one of the things I remember saying earlier, and there was huge complaints about this, was I was presenting at a conference in Bournemouth the year we started, and I said, look, it doesn't matter what your professional training tells you is, so it was a room full of social workers and doctors and nurses, I says, you, some of your professional training will tell you this is a brain disease. Some of your professional training will tell you it's a behavioural condition. It's a learned behaviour. I said, none of that matters. What matters is you give people access to all the paths that might help them get well because none of us can predict which path will work. So your job is to make sure that you give people access to all the different paths that may or could help them get well and not to punish them if one path doesn't work, to still give them access to the other paths and that path again, you know, because again, the research tells us people will try somewhere between five and eight times before they really uh, get on their journey yeah. to recovery. Yeah, because that brain development, so, that brain development, while they're still actively in addiction, it's an arduous yeah. journey, but it still can move you forward but but it's, it has yeah. to be in an environment that that, that allows that yeah. to happen while we say keep coming back it it does allow the brain yeah. to start developing but it was that professional prejudice like of people saying no no this is the path that works no 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 this is the path that works no 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 this is the path that works and we were like no there are many paths to recovery and all are a cause for celebration and at that time, particularly, the 12 steps and, and can still be massively prejudiced against. You know, people have a terrible misunderstanding of what it's about. You know, just the mention of the God word has some people sizzling, you know, spitting with um, fever. Um, so, you know, that, that was why that was our original strap line. Like, we are making recovery visible and there are many pathways and all are a cause for celebration, not just the ones that your professional training tells you. Uh, are the good ones you know you have to your job as a professional is to make sure people get access and choice of them all and that's essentially what, what the right to recovery bill does it would make it the law your, sorry what would be your view the, the the reason for that if if you've uh that it's actually formed in the way that it has the treatment services is it sort of financial reasons or philosophy or professional what what would you think you the reason it's actually formed in that way and and again I think the twelve step problem I think we 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 all face that in professional circles. Yeah, do you know what, Lester? I don't even think it matters what I think about that. I do think there's been financial uh, implications um, and financial motives, and you know, obviously big pharma. You know, like. I mean, it's it's obvious, you, you know, you don't need me to pontificate about, you know, why that's the case. The important part is, as far as I'm concerned, is that this the addiction sector has an opportunity now to move people's right to access and choice of the many paths into the law, out of 
the because we are very much at the political whim of whatever parties in place you know whether or not the, the addiction treatment sector gets funded and which programs programs get funded more than others but if you take it out of the hands of the politicians and put it into the hands of the law and make it the law that you can get access to treatment um well that's a different ball game altogether and not only that it means that no one can ever take that funding away again as they have done many times over the course of the last 30 years you know funding has been taken away given back taken away given back and this would essentially ring fence people's access and the public money in order for people to access treatment that they uh that they need and and, and through that it would be everything from you know methadone and all the various harm reduction interventions. And this, this is the difference, you know, when we talk about treatment as people in recovery, we're talking about treatment that helps people get freedom from their dependency. And that's what the general public thinks we're talking about when we talk about treatment, whereas actually no, they, the industry they, is talking about harm reduction interventions yeah, they, and they substitute prescriptions. So, yeah, yeah. So the, the meaning of words, I mean, they're trying to redefine sorry. rehab. They're well, also they trying to they have. They have treatment, yeah, yeah. recovery. Yeah. But again, I think the reason yeah. I ask that question is because, you know, the friends that I have that work in, in them industries, they often say, well, rehab's too expensive. Um, and again, it is always my belief that with the lack of better treatments, that chemicals are going to be offered because, again, I, I challenge doctors uh, just in a in a in a lesser version of um, methadone and, and other opiate replacements that when you're in a rehab and they used to say to the people coming in <clears throat> over quite a lot of years so I asked quite a few hundred people I would say look who went to the doctors at the worst time in their life everybody puts their hand up who got prescribed high-powered sedatives which all have on the packets do not drink alcohol everybody puts their hand up who got better? Nobody puts their hand up. Never have. Who got worse? Everybody puts their hand up. And even like that, in 1937 in the AA Big Book, it says, I was prescribed high-powered sedatives and then the trips to the asylums begun. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, that that they and even when I've challenged doctors over the years and said, look, why are you giving these chemicals to these people that you're actually making worse? Do you not realise that? And, and and I think you're contributing massively to overdose in the very nature of the name, overdose, which I think they're just starting to collect more toxicology reports to show that people that are overdosing and suiciding to see what chemicals they've got in their system is it's shocking. And, and doctors always say, well, we've only got five minutes. And it's like, that's not a good reason to give people these high-powered sedatives that are actually making them worse because you haven't got a better treatment and um yeah. so I, so i think that, yeah. that, that there is that, yeah. that that is that part that they say that well we can't afford it but so again looking at the statistics it's like you can't not afford it really when you work out the cost and i don't know whether you've come across this but i've been noticing on the government reports that they always say i don't think it's uk i'm not sure whether it's uh, just england but it says that the cost of alcohol to the country is 21 billion but that statistic was put together in 2007 
there's a group called the IIS, the Institute of Alcohol, and their studies show that it's more like 51 billion. Now, again, in the Dame Carol Black's report, she says every pound they give recovery or treatment, which is unfortunately going to all of your turning points and them kind of people, that there's a £4 return to society in NHS and criminal systems and, and other areas. So by not investing in that form of treatment, you're actually spending more money. Yeah. It's always been a short-term fix. That's the problem, you know. It was right back to Thatcher. The crime reduction dividend was a short-term fix. It was, And that's why the right to recovery bill is so important because it would take mm. it out of the hands of politicians. The politicians are only interested in three-year terms. We're interested yeah. in helping people get well. That takes time and it takes investment up front. All the guys and girls that I got clean with, um, I mean, I was quite rare that I was, I got clean in the rooms, you know. Most of them came through some sort of rehab and, and I'm talking about people who were then in their 20s who were ages with me. Now, those people have all been contributing productive members of society for the last 25, 30 years, do you know what I mean? Yeah. They've paid their taxes, you know, and and what I've seen over the years is, you know, that decline in people getting access to rehab and people getting, you know, not getting the chance, not getting the choice, not getting the opportunity to get freedom from that dependency. And actually, it's became so bent out of shape in Scotland that our drug death task force in their final report, you know, they were... Uh, put together in 2019 as a response to the pressure that we put on the Scottish Government where you keep talking, we keep dying campaign. They got a range of experts together, addiction experts, led by a pharmacist. Um, and there, at the end of their report, their three-year term, there was a 12% rise in drug deaths. And they actually stated in their final report, which had, uh, I think, it was, I can't remember, there was 700 times it mentioned the word should in it and we all know as people in recovery what that means should shoulda woulda coulda um but they also spoke about how abstinence-based recovery was stigmatizing and we shouldn't ask people to do that because it's stigmatizing to ask people who are yeah. addicted i think that's utterly absurd that we you know that we should be we should be so far out of shape bent out of shape that a pharmacist-led task force is advocating that abstinence-based recovery is stigmatising. That is so very obviously insane. And also, yeah, it's you know... it's like you're being cruel offer, uh, offering that as an option. Yeah, we are. We're, we're, we're stigmatising drug users by suggesting that they might want to stop using drugs. That's yeah. not kind. It's not compassionate, Lester. Because they're going to foul and then you're going to make them feel bad, and, apparently. And, yeah, and what we should just be doing, and this is the Scottish Drugs Forum, who are the, the largest uh, government quangle in the UK, based in Scotland, they are now promoting what they call so-called safe supply. So what we should just be doing is giving people heroin and cocaine and we should be doing that in a measured and regulated way. Oh, I thought that was going to come after the great success of the consumption room, that, oh, that the safe supply. That, that's the trajectory that they're laying out. And just this mm. week, um, I've you know we were always uh, 
we were always supportive of drug consumption rooms. <clears throat> we were always critical in that we were saying that, you know, it's a it's a stick and plaster, um, and it's palliative care. It does nothing to help people access treatment. So, so we were supportive in the sense that we were saying, well, it's it's one of the things that you could do, but. The Scottish government used it as a massive political weapon against Westminster, blaming Westminster for our drug deaths because we never had, you know, drug consumption rooms, which, you know, certain sections of the Scottish public bought into, but it was political posturing because England doesn't have drug consumption rooms and we've got three and a half times less deaths in England, you know. Um, but Would that be, would that be um, I guess, sort of my perception of looking at Scotland and, and again, listening to some of the things that you've written and done before would sort of make me think that, you know, the consumption rooms are without question a desperate um, measure in a desperate situation. But, but then you got our question, well, what led it to that, to that place? I think what led it to that place, pure and simple ideology, right? Because just this week, and I've not been able to articulate this in writing yet, but I will, um, over the course of the next week or so, I've came across loads of evidence that has highlighted that drug consumption rooms are of no value, public value at all. In fact, the deaths are higher. The overdoses are higher. Um, you know, there's there was a meta-analysis done and all the research on drug consumption rooms that one of the authors got death threats from publishing, which I find incredible, you know. So that hints and points to... Um, you know, the money that's involved here. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'll be... A... It seems like a lot of money as well, the funding, like seven million, I think, for three years. That seems like a lot of money, doesn't it? Well, when you compare it to... So in Glasgow, if you use Glasgow as a microcosm, you have a £50 million treatment budget here. Oh. They're talking... They're already spending £4 million a year on heroin-assisted treatment. Um, £2.3 million now in a drug consumption room. They're claiming that 1.5 million has been spent on rehab, and the rest of it has obviously been spent on um, substitute prescriptions or system management. But to have a system that only spends 1.5 million out of 50 million on actual rehab is utterly insane. It's devoid of any sort of ethics. But rehab, um, it's also, and again in England, is the same now. If they do get funded to rehab it's only going to be pretty much a detox probably for mm-hmm. four to six weeks not the sort of yeah. six months to nine months yeah. that i think most people of the need. people yeah all the really evidence need they're, all, they're always talking about evidence-based treatment all the evidence bases the longer that you're in rehab the better and yet they're shortening the yeah they're, well they don't they yeah. don't research that, that, that yeah. that's, uh, i was talking to luke trainer from birmingham university who set up the uh recovery uh, support in the university which is quite fantastic but but he was sort of was talking about you know how little research there is into what goes on in the 12-step people in that recovery but hopefully they're going to start evidencing some of that as well because I think it's so important for people to see to say look this really doesn't make sense what they're doing yeah it just doesn't make sense yeah recovery research overall is is really limited but what we do know is that it works and that you know people people get access to it it really works they get to build and lead extraordinary lives in a lot of cases you know so um i think you know this what worrying pattern that we're seeing now in scotland is that they're redefining the word rehab so 
as I said, Glasgow City Council's claiming it spends 1.5 million or in fact that's a lie. They're claiming they're spending five million on rehab. Um now there's only twenty three rehab places. Some of those places cost a thousand pounds a month, some of them cost eight hundred pounds a month, so at the most that comes to one point five million. But um in their audits back to the government they say they're spending five million. And it's just when they talk about rehab, they're talking, they're now redefining what rehab is. So they're talking about stabilisation yeah. centres. They're talking about mental health beds. When you dig into what they're actually claiming as rehab, I went and spoke to um, an organisation recently in Scotland who were being wheeled out by the government um, uh, as, as a rehab. And, you know, when I went and talked to the women, who run that service and it was like being met by a set of guards actually because they knew they know that I'm all over this they they don't want me questioning what they're doing and um, I soon discovered you know after a few minutes chat with them that it wasn't the rehab that they were doing at all there was there was some palliative care going on and no doubt there was some uh, compassionate work uh, happening where they were trying to you know help women um who had children uh, not get their children taken from from them but it wasn't a rehab lester do you know what i mean like you no. know not in any sense no, that they've, we they've called it. one in the city near me they've they've called it a rehab but really it's just a drop-in center yeah but they, they they've changed they they've changed the name of treatment they've changed the name of recovery now they're changing the name yeah rehab to be a lot lesser yeah. than what we would expect it to it's be. It's Orwellian, isn't it? It's, it's strange. Again, I don't. I, I try and resist the conspiracy theories, but when you kind of made this your life and looking from, I guess, our point of view, and we shared a sort of similar conclusions of the reality, yeah. not the statistics, yeah. because when I look at their statistics, it all looks really good, but... <laughs> But the reality is what I see is in the last 20 years, because I've been there from the beginning, yeah. that since the harm minimalization and the methadone and more drugs have been made available to drug addicts, the death rate's been rising yeah. when we've got a treatable, you know, even when I, I, I try, you know, reading all of their reports and trying to understand them, because they're, they're not easy to understand if you're not working in their industry constantly, even in a private sector, which I was. Yeah all their acronyms and words they use, it's like, I'm not sure what you're even talking about, but but they even Deliberate. say things. Deliberate. Yeah, that, oh, most of the deaths are of people that are not in treatment or not access treatment. But then when you, which they get from their MTDMS, I think it's called, but then, then they put their report together based on that. But then you look at the national statistics of drug poisonings, it then it actually appears that more you've got probably three times more chance of dying in treatment than in, in their version of treatment than not. Yeah. And again, it's so hard to actually verify these facts because unless they're willing to accept them, which they're definitely <laughs> not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, yeah, there's there's no way of saying, look, I'm not 100% sure if I'm right. It's just my gut tells me, my 33 years experience tells me, and... You know, my um, the reality that I'm looking at tells me that something's wrong yeah. here. Well, it's Orwellian. It's like, don't believe your own eyes. Believe what the government tell you. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can see yeah. my community's been flooded by, 
you know, substitute prescriptions and that has created a knock-on effect. We're seeing it in Canada, you know, the government supplying so-called... Yeah, in Vancouver's terrible, man. Yeah, the government, they're calling it a safe supply. Even the language around it's Orwellian, you know, how can mm. you... There's no safe supply of opioids, are you mental? Do you know what I mean? Like, the, yeah. these drugs are horrendous, you know, for the human condition. Um, great if you're, you know, in pain, suffering from... You know, an injury. Even when we had the rehab, we would we would prefer people to go over to Subutex because it just seemed that when they were on the methadone, they would just seem so dumbed down. It was almost <laughs> impossible. Yeah. Just, but when you put them on the yeah. Subutex, you could see that there was improvement yeah, and they could engage and develop. Yeah. I had that conversation the other day, and you know, with those women that I was telling you about, and I said, you know, there's no way on God's earth I can help anybody to recover whilst they're sedated. It's, not, it's impossible. I no. cannot get anywhere near the pain that needs to come up in order for them to heal. And these women, you know, very... Um, I mean, they were so patronisingly told me that was nonsense. And I was like, are yeah. you, you know, okay, we're going to have to agree to disagree here. Like you said, you know, there's a much better drugs uh, like Bouvidal or um, the buprenorphines where people are still, they're cognitively, dis you know, they're here. They're with yeah, us. Well, they've got some room yeah, to develop yeah. on that. So, um, yeah, they're, obviously, I, you know, I think in five years' time, we won't... I think one of the reasons why most people aren't really interested in this area, unless you are in recovery or, you know, have some sort of financial motive or... Um, is because, you know, drug addicts are still seen as moral de degenerates, you know, we're still seen as being people who have made bad choices, um, lifestyle choices. In fact, the head of the Drug Death Task Force in Scotland was on radio with me a couple of years ago, and that's what she said. She called it a lifestyle choice. So, you know, the there's a horrendous lack of understanding um, about what this condition entails and what, what it takes to recover from it. And I think history will judge us very, very harshly, you know, uh, for how we attempted to deal with it. Um, I mean, the, the man on the street, the common sense, and I think most people who, who are in the industry have been educated out of their instincts. You know, we know, the man on the street knows giving a drug addict more drugs is a recipe for disaster, you know. And I'm not saying that there is any value in it initially, but to continue to meet people where they're at is important. But to leave them there and not have any expectations or hope for anything better than where they're at is unethical. It's that simple. It's unethical. It's, you know? it's demonic, I think. And again, you know, the word overdose kind of sums it up. And where's most of them drugs coming from? And, you know, I'm pretty sure it's coming from pharmaceuticals and, and well, government agencies that you can see that and the, and the toxology yeah. reports is there it's there for the yeah. for everybody to see you know? yeah but yeah there's They're still a really denial that that's the together. problem yeah yes. and i think that's the thing about addiction on all levels even people in recovery there certainly is a real element of denial to it all mm -hmm. and i think you know even talking to somebody like yourself that got a really good foundation and you know, probably a desire to sort of learn and mm -hmm. and and see what's going on for yourself and showing some interest in it, which again is why I think that you know the um, well, you mentioned faces earlier. and voices of recovery, and you addressing that 
uh, anonymity and, and getting people to stand up because again always have this dream of being able to get like a hundred people in abstinence recovery and a hundred people in whatever the other versions of recovery and sit them on two different sides of the room and say look you tell me the difference mm. because you'll see these brains have recovered and these ones aren't recovered yeah and, and you can see the difference it's 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 you know, because again, I feel that I've understood this for a lot of years. The people that come out of our rehabs, the when they went back to the local authorities, they I would often get phone calls of saying, "What are you doing? There's something so different about these people coming back to our services than even other rehabs because they just want to get on. They want to. They they got a. They they're re-inspired, and it's like, well, because we've empowered a part of their brain that they did were denied access and showed them how to look after that and develop mm. that and you know it was a tangible experience that that other people had but yeah. but again trying to actually get and say look this is achievable but we do need these communities yeah and, and there's a lot more we could do in the community to support the growth in, in these minds yeah. and I think that's the advantage we have we see that growth and that development in fact not only do we see it we expect it and the treatment system doesn't yeah. expect it do you know what I mean and we are we are we are faced with it and nurtured in it and every day and they they don't so when they do see it they're like what the hell is this you know so I think um you know going back to the right to recovery bill if we can give access like i think there's there's a the drug legalization lobby has been you know when harm reduction was first introduced um it was never you know the the guys the doctors at the time like strang and you know various um high profile people at the time who were advocating for harm reduction interventions they were at pains to help you know, the the legislators and the policy and the government at the time see that this wasn't a slippery slope to legalisation. And I think over time what's happened is the harm reduction movement. And in fact, someone who was being abusive to me the other day on Twitter claimed that he was part of the progressive harm reduction movement. And what he actually means is the legalisation lobby. But I think there's a real danger now that harm reduction, the the kind of baby gets thrown out with the bathwater because um, the the legalisation lobby, harm reduction, is becoming synonymous with legalisation. I was I was in a, a a meeting the other day where the the woman, relatively new to the addiction field, but in a very senior position in Scotland, only. Her, her organisation had only been working in the addiction field for the last two and a half years and she was outraged that we were not providing tourniquets and crack pipes and if we could only do that when there would be less deaths and I was just like these people are mad, these people are insane you know like being outraged at the fact that we're not providing uh, free tourniquets um, so I think there's you know very big political lobbying groups with a lot of money behind them who want to see legalisation. I think there's a whole element of public health professionals wanting to see legalisation as well because what that would entail would be, you know, the government could essentially wash their hands of providing any treatment. It's legal. You're making your own choice. It's up to you. You know, hell slap it into you, as my mother would say. Um, but that point you made earlier about the language being deliberately confusing, I learned to speak their language. You know, I've been working in this field for... 
20 odd years now and I you know I had a relatively senior role in the structures of you know similar to the DATS in England so the alcohol and drug partnerships they are in Scotland and I know how to speak the language and I know how much denial they're in you know and I know that they, there's an element of protectionism going on not just in the industry the industry's massive you know as far as an employee I, I i don't even i'd love somebody to do a forensic analysis of how many people are employed you know like there seems to me what uh huey from blackpool described it uh, he said in the morning in the schemes in blackpool you'll see a whole army of middle-class professionals driving in monday to friday at 9 a.m and then driving out again at 5 p.m so Seems to me that there's a real two-tier system going on here, and, and I dread to think how big an industry it is. I'd love to know actually. Um, yeah. But uh, keeping people in poverty and keeping people in addiction. Yeah, I, I mean, even though I'm a treatment professional myself, I do love the idea that I don't think professionals are going to solve this problem anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really the the ultimate promotion is that when I think the general public actually understand that they can actually get a lot of this for free <laughs> and that the solution is in the the solution is in the community well, this and is that it. if we put our efforts there and, and we don't really need the government to solve this problem in actual fact they seem to be a big hindrance to it that's been the experience of my journey so yeah, far yeah there's a lot in that Lester and it, 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 you know there, <clears throat> we need to recognise that this is essentially a bigger problem you know why are so many young people why are so many people in general trying to get oblivion Mm. and why has drug use became so normalized you know that we're even talking about safe supply and safe consumption rooms you know this this, hallucinogenics have been made legal in australia and and certain parts of canada i think in america this is speaking to a much bigger problem with the the spiritual nature of humanity, you know, and the lack of connection, that we are seeking connection through chemical oblivion, you know, like I think that's a much bigger cultural discussion and that's about, you know, the breakdown of, you know, meaning and purpose in our lives, uh, the disconnection, you know, particularly with the internet and so many of us leading lives online. Um, so, I think you said it earlier, again, based my own experience of being 25 years old and in a state of complete desperation but I think the real cherry on the cake was I felt like I'd lost all hope mm-hmm. um, I tried so much and I think when I come, went into my first AA meeting mm-hmm. I really was completely hopeless um, which was yeah. a suicidal kind of situation to find myself in and from that very first meeting I remember praying please god let me be an alcoholic because it just gave me such great hope yeah and i think from that first meeting i never drunk again because uh i found something to give me hope and i think the world's becoming such a well whatever the government i just think it is the governments or the people that are pulling their strings that the world's becoming such a hopeless place that then people are going to turn to to drugs yeah and, well, I heard, and, uh, I read, um, like I read something Keith Humphreys said, and Keith is a Stanford professor who's, in my opinion, one of the best uh, researchers in this field. And he said, you know, that essentially we have to be really careful that we're not just sedating poverty. 
And I think that's, you know, if we go back to the 1980s and all those, you know, young men who became addicted with the first waves of brown powder heroin in particular, you know, that was about unemployment. Methadone was like, a, and Mark Gelman described it as a fire hose, you know, we went into the schemes and housing associations just sprayed everybody down with methadone. And that was a sedation of poverty. And it's not just poverty in the material sense. And I think over the next 40 years, I think that we're going to see a recession like we've never seen before. Um, and I think that poverty, you know, f from a lack of hope point of view, I think people are going to see more despair than they've ever seen before. And that's not to say I'm, you know, the, a, a monger of doom here, because I think that poverty... Um, and when when it's experienced by the whole nation, will could have um, of course a lot of suffering, um, but there's there's um, there's there's a gift of desperation that comes with uh, extreme poverty and not just material poverty, you know, like you described and what I experienced was the real poverty of spirit, you know, and it's that 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 brought me to my knees and essentially brought me into solutions. So. Paradoxically, that despair uh, that I think is um, being fostered on the world at the moment by the political or the elite, um, I think that that will, in, in over time, bring new hope as well. I think I th the human the human spirit rallies um, when dis you know often if um, you know it can get access to. Um, people who have also been in that place of absolute despair, there will always be hope. And I think that's what you experienced at your first meeting. I probably experienced it as well. Um, and uh, I think I think real fruit can be born. Even think about it, the, the AA Fellowship was born in the 30s. You know, it was born during, during the Great Recession. And I Great think... Recession, yeah. I think um, that 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 will happen again and there'll be a you know our, our fellowship has steadily grown over the last uh, 100 years and it will continue to grow you know um, and I think it's in times of despair it grows faster so yeah. although there'll be suffering I, I still have tremendous hope yeah, well there is a way out yeah it's just yeah. Uh, like that, that that was going to be the name of the book for AA. They wanted to call it The Way Out, but I think there was 14 other books with that title already, so they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. But you yeah. wish, I think after 13 years, he wish he called it Out of Altered Attitudes, which is why I chose the name of the, the podcast. But um, the right to recovery, Bill, um, I guess that's aimed at Parliament, the Scottish Parliament. How far is that? That, that's getting what's the difficulties and that, that you could possibly have with that is that something that they're starting to listen to a little bit or um the uh, i couldn't possibly predict which way this will go right if you look at it from a votes because you need votes to get a, pa a bill passed the the ruling party currently is the Scottish National Party and um, they have the majority and they you know they seem hell-bent on decriminalization slash legalization you know you'll have people that argue that decriminalization doesn't mean legalization but it does right uh, and we could get into that another time but um, 
they're hell bent on that. And the 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 people who are advising them, the experts, are telling them that that's the way forward. Um, that uh, will just have absolutely devastating uh, consequences to especially our poorest communities where you're currently 18 times more likely to die from a drug deaths than you know in our in our, our sort of ordinary communities. Um, so the, all the odds are stacked against this bill. But again, the general public's behind it. So purely from a, a numbers game voting point of view, the odds are stacked against it. But the general public's behind it. Every church in Scotland's behind it. The poverty industry in Scotland's behind it. The homeless industry in Scotland's behind it. A lot of civic Scotland are behind it. The press are behind it. You know, it's been debated. And even the fact that it's been debated that this should be a law, that people should be able to access treatment. And the, one of the main things that's came out of the debate, the debate about this bill has been the opportunity to tell the public that when you hear the word treatment, it's a substitute prescription. It's not treatment. So when your government or when your agencies are telling you we're spending X amount on treatment, you're automatically thinking rehab and that's not what people are getting. So the very nature of this bill coming to Parliament has been massive um, in raising the debate and educating people, which is you know one of our aims as a charity about addiction and also about recovery. So for us, it's already been a win, you know, um, yeah. in a lot of respects. But we'll see. I mean... Um, with God, all things are possible, you know. Um, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of support for this, uh, for this bill because so many people now. It's not just you know. It's, I've got to laugh, you know, when we started talking about the press started talking about a cost of living crisis. Only became a crisis because the middle classes started having problems paying their bills. It's always been a crisis for, you know, the working classes. You know, making ends meet yeah, and obviously. So I think I think what's happening now is we're seeing a tipping point with addiction as well, and that the middle classes are starting to be affected by it, and their families are starting to be affected by it, and their sons and daughters are starting to die as well. So I think once um, once enough people are affected by it, then it'll get the the serious nature, the discussion, the debate will rise enough. Uh, into the seriousness of which it deserves. I think up until now we've still been able to stigmatise people um, and and to swipe the debate away but this bill is, is doing that at the very least. If that's all it does, well it's a win but I think the industry across the UK and I know from the correspondence that I get from across the world it's they're, people are watching it from all over the world, from the Western world, certainly, because if it gets passed in Scotland, it has to get passed in other countries as well. You know, the right to addiction treatment, the right to rehab, the right to Bouvidal, the right to methadone, the right to, you know, having those rights uh, enshrined in law is a big, big difference from being at the the whim of whatever politicians are in, in place, you know, and and the variety of different countries across the world so it's a, it's, it's a once in a lifetime, I think it's a once in a lifetime opportunity um, but you know if it, if it fails um, if it doesn't get through the first stage or the second stage those three stages um, I think it'll still be worthwhile in that I, I'm a big believer that I've seen loads of projects start or loads of growth and development start and maybe not take you know the seed has planted it might not bear fruit 
in that particular person or in that particular place at that particular time, but someone else spotted the seed, you know, so and someone yeah. else planted another seed. So the the unknown nature of what impact this will have will be beyond my perception and what I can uh, evaluate or monitor, you know. So I think there's we're already winning having raised the discussion about people yeah. should have well, access think, think to like more treatment. People in recovery are uh, starting to rise up a little bit, and and some are, uh, you know, with your f- faces of recovery, um, that that you know, people are starting to rally together, and I think ultimately that's going to be the change to be seen, and um, for people to understand that there is another way, that there is a way yeah. out. I did uh, a podcast think... with an American the other day, and. He said, you know, you's, it looks to me like you are bang on time. He said, you did that first 10 years of being conciliatory and building relationships, building bridges from the harm re- reduction community into the recovery community. He said, now you are angry. You are bang on time, you know. So I, I do take yeah. sort of solace from that, that, you know, we always knew when we started that we wanted to organise and mobilise the recovery community politically. And that, that seems to be what we've yeah. done. Um, I've never been confident or assured about my leadership, but uh, there's no one else has came forward to do it. You know, so I'm, I'm open to other people to helping, other ideas, other support. You know, if somebody else wants to take on my job, I'll hand it over willingly. Um, the, the, the first AA group I was in in Canada was called the Trailblazers. <laughs> and... Um, because yeah. I lived on this island, uh, I love reading the stories about the pioneers yeah. and the early pioneers that were the loggers. They used to be these little cities that would be these like really crazy guys that were so tough and rough that they would yeah. cut their way into these forests and spend years sort of on their own with their little group. But when yeah. finally civilization caught them up, because they'd become so wild, they weren't able to live in the cities. <laughs> so I think the pioneers is a, it's a tough, it's a tough job. But yeah. like my mate said, look, if you, if you're gonna cut a path, make it a wide one. Yeah. So no, other absolutely. people can get through. So I really appreciate you um, talking well, think, to us today and for flying yeah. the flag for recovery. I think it's so important, and I think it is the right time now. Yeah, and I think, you know, to finish up, I, I, I just want to say that even from I was a wee child, a wee girl, you know, where I was experiencing that violence and that harm, I knew it was unjust. You know, it was part of my soul that was fighting. You know, from a, from my earliest memory, I knew it was wrong and I knew it was unjust. And, and I would never, you know, there was other people, obviously, around me who would cower and walk away and uh, not take on the fight. And I took it on. I took it on for a very young age. And it's through me like a stalk of rock. It's who I am. I can't not fight. And uh, I can't not fight when I see such injustice, you know, and I see such abuse, uh, abuse of power, abuse of public funds, um, abuse of people who are suffering. And, um, you know, I, I, I see myself as a completely... Um, you know, like, just not up, you know, like, whose idea was this? Like, you know, who put me in this position? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, and I certainly have led my life under the, 
the auspices of our third step. Like, just show me, I'll show up. You show me, you know, a life of service um, has been, you know, that like I will do. You know, there's a section in the Big Book, I think it's on page 98. I screenshotted it last night, actually. I was at a Big Book study group. I'll just read it out to you. I think this would be a lovely way to finish. Um, and it says... Uh, Never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you're doing the right thing if you assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't good enough. You have to act the Good Samaritan every day, if need be. It may mean the loss of many nights sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money in your home counselling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails and asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the day or night. Your wife may sometimes say she is neglected. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn the mattress. You may have to fight with him if he is violent. Sometimes you will have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. Another time you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally you will have to meet such conditions. We seldom allow an alcoholic to live in our homes for a long time but it's not, it is not good for him and sometimes creates serious complications in a family. But what I took from that reading last night was, you know, that's in the chapter Working from Others, it's page Working with Others, page 97, is you know, I have had, and I, and I continue to sponsor, you know, I'm very lucky that I'm able to do that, I'm in a position to do that. Um, that I, I don't want to be the good Samaritan do you know what I mean? But my life depends on it. And I am, it's became a way of life for me to show up and be a service. And that, you know, I'm not playing the martyrdom hero story here. That is my life. That is who I am. It is through me like a stock of rock. I was always wanting to help people from a very, very young age before I got, you know, consumed by addiction. Even in my addiction, what little I had, I wanted to give. Um, and I'll continue to try and help where I can. Yeah, well, I think it's I think you sort of realise, and I do myself. Is what we've been given is very important because of what it did for our lives and what we've been spared of. I've been spared of thirty-three years of probably misery if I'd have been alive yeah. still. And it is. I feel the same as you. I'm like fifty-seven, and there's part of me I just want to retire and go off. But there's a part of me. It always reminds me how important that this is, and even you reading that, that's always been a important passage to me. Because back in the early days when we started in the sober living houses in Watford, I read that and I kind of ticked off all of the boxes except the cigarette burn. And then one day I took a load of guys to a meeting in my car, and when I kind of got to clear the got home at the end of the meeting and cleared the car out, there was a cigarette burn about that long. It was like they must have lit the cigarette and dropped it. And instead of being angry about it, I thought, oh, good, I can tick that one off. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but Brilliant. I think it's so fantastic, recovery. And again, you just do want... I think there's a, there's a bit in the third edition that it says... That, that I think it was Bill talking to Henrietta, I think. It, and he was saying to her that that he's so grateful what the Lord's done to him, is the words that he used in there, that, that he just can't keep... He just keeps wanting to tell yeah. people. Just and I think because it is that it is just that fan 
fantastic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like you. I'm hopeful for the I future. We, we've and, got uh, the discernment and the wisdom yeah. to see that it's it's got worse. It's probably going to get worse, but there's always hope. Yeah, always hope. And so, if people wanted to learn more about the um, the uh, the bill yeah. to the right to recovery and the voices and faces, what would they actually? Where would they find that if they wanted to learn more or get yeah, involved? Yeah, the, the oracle that is Google. Just type into Google the right to recovery bill or faces and voices of recovery, and it's all there. In fact, if you've got um, Chat GPT, you could ask that as well and let me know what it says. Um, yeah, so, and of course, uh, you can email me at annemarie at faces and voices of recovery uk.org. My number's online as well if anybody wants to give me a call. Uh, yeah. Appreciate it, Amory. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing today. It's uh, tons to think about. Uh, we're coming up to a couple of hours, so we should probably end it there or. Matt will be worrying about what to do with it all. It's probably going to be a two-parter. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure we'll be calling on you again for some more chats. But really good to meet you and thank you very much uh, for Brilliant. coming on. And I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk a wee bit more about, you know, the bill, about the charity and obviously about my own personal experience. And it's great to hear from someone else who's got that length as well, that, you know, especially working in the field and seeing the, you know, the the catastrophic nature of how things have developed and to say to speak about that so honestly, um that's important to me as well. I think I'm having I'm on quite a journey having a bit of um a three six or one eighty on stuff. Um so yeah, I'd love to keep chatting more. Let's see if we can get that set up. Any time. Any time. Well God bless and uh I'll speak right. to you Bye. soon. God bless Lester. Bye bye.